This sermon was recorded at the Midtown Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. So this is from Isaiah 58. It's on page 617 in the Bibles in the pew backs in front of you. Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask me, they ask of me righteous judgments, they delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no acknowledgement of it? Behold, the day of your fast you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this fast in a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall call and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking of wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong, and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall rise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of the streets to dwell in. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father from the mouth of the Lord, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken." Hey, good morning. Let's uh, pray and we'll jump in together. God, we receive your word this morning. We receive it. 
We say yes and amen to everything we have heard, read to us, spoken to us. We receive it as the voice of the living God uttered into our midst. We say yes. So even in the places where this word is meant to cut us and confront us and jar us awake, God, this morning, I ask that you would allow your word, not my voice, not um, my inflection. Would you let your word be like a trumpet blast and an alarm to us in the places where we are sleeping, in the places where we have been lulled to sleep by sin and indulgence and selfish desires? God, would your word shake us awake? Would you sound an alarm like a trumpet blast in this room this morning? God, in the places where our hearts are not lined up with your mercy, your justice, your righteousness, your grace, God, in the places where we are content to go through the motions, but our hearts remain far and our lives remain unaffected. God, would you, in your loving kindness, alert us? God, would you give us the gift of repentance this morning? Would you even create in us soft hearts that can receive and respond so that we can be recipients of all of these unbelievable promises that we heard read. God, shine your light in darkness. Bring healing where there is sickness. God, would you be the glory before us and behind us? God, would you satisfy us in scorched places? Would you be like a spring of water to us that doesn't fail? God, would you give us the grace to rebuild places that are desolate and broken? God, would you, for your name's sake and for your glory, cause us to see what is real? God, would you shock us with reality now? so that we can humble ourselves before you and receive the fullness of your glory in our midst. God, we ask for revelation. We ask for your spirit to move here among us. We need you. We need you. We can't do it on our own. We can't go through the right motions. God, would you make our hearts tender and soft that we would believe your word and that we would respond to your word in obedience no matter the cost. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, so as we have seen in previous weeks in this section of Isaiah that we find ourselves in, chapters 56 to 66, we're looking at a community 
that's living in the already but the not yet of God's promises. The community has received these wonderful and beautiful promises that God is going to deliver them. He's going to provide a way for them to be saved. He's going to bear his mighty arms so that they might experience his glory and his salvation. But they wait for the fulfillment of those promises. In a similar manner, we've talked about we now live as God's people between the times. Right, The times when he has fulfilled his promise to bring deliverance, he's accomplished his work of salvation in Christ Jesus, yet we wait until the day when he makes all things new. We're still waiting in the in-between. And the in-between time creates all of these tensions that we have to live through. And it's into these tensions that God, again, speaks these beautiful promises in these passages. He speaks uh, promises of his nature, promises of what he's like. But Isaiah 58 serves in a little bit of a different manner. It is a jarring confrontation to the tendencies of the human heart toward hypocrisy, towards religious ritual that isn't sustained by heart connect or obedience to the things that God has commanded. Isaiah 58, if you see even in verses, verse 1, is like an alarm clock that is meant to wake us up. It's meant to shake us from sleep. It's meant to confront us. It is meant to be a jarring and an exposing reality of the tendencies that we have, even as the people of God, to give lip services to his realities and his truth. Yet in our lives, we harbor or allow places of disobedience places of compromise, and it is a trumpet blast to any and all who will hear the word that God has mercy for those who will turn and repent and come to him. This passage shows that we, as the people of God, are meant to embody something as we live throughout our sojourn in this world. We are to be the faithful ambassadors of God's marvelous grace and salvation in the ways that we embody mercy, grace, and justice in our lives. It points to the truth that it's the whole of our lives that God cares about, not simply our religious efforts and rituals. I heard one pastor in a sermon I read on Isaiah 58 reference the famous sermon, Sunday's Coming, you know, you, the one where throughout the sermon he talks about Friday's here, meaning Jesus is in the ground and we see this pain and suffering, but Sunday's coming. Resurrection life is about to bring forth. And he said we could talk about Isaiah 58 like Monday's coming. Sunday we experience the grace of God made manifest in the proclamation of his word, in the worship together, and how we gather and rehearse and enact the realities of God's saving power in our midst. But Monday morning is coming. 
And Isaiah 58 has a clarion call to us that we are meant to embody the saving grace of God in our lives, in how we live out mercy and justice and grace. So the simple outline that I have for us this morning is just two things. In Isaiah 58, we see a warning and we see a promise. We see a warning and we see a promise. So we'll begin with the warning that the prophet gives to the people. If you've closed your Bibles, open them back up. Isaiah 58, we'll start in verse one. The warning is this, if I could give it to you in a sentence. Religious rituals are worthless if you're practicing willful disobedience in your life. That's the warning. Religious rituals are worthless. They are nothing if you are coddling and holding practices of willful disobedience in your life, particularly as they relate to how you interact with others. We see in Isaiah 58. So the first seven verses of this chapter are a stark call to the people of God who would presume upon his presence, they'd presume upon his mercy, and they'd presume upon his grace. The prophet begins with the voice of God breaking in in verse one, a call to cry aloud the sins of the people in their hearing. The prophets to sound a clarion call to grab the attention with full-throated declaration the sins that the people are committing. This is not a gentle, kind-hearted encouragement to look at something. This isn't like a wonderfully soft encouragement. This is meant to be a full-throated confrontation, jarring, abrasive, something that cannot be ignored. The torpor of their sin-laden slumber required an alarm to be sounded. This is a trumpet blast in the midst of a quiet night. This is meant to jar you. See it here, cry aloud. Do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression and to the house of Jacob their sins. In verse two, what we begin to see is this portrait is painted. He moves from this declaration that we're to confront the sins of the people, but now we see that they are practicing these religious rites day in and day out. They're highlighted, showing that the people are interested in practicing these things that are beautiful before God. They seek me daily. They delight to know my ways. As if they were a nation that did righteousness, they didn't forsake the judgments of God. They ask me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near. It sounds like a kind of people I want to be a part of. It sounds really beautiful. He says, you're doing these things, but almost immediately, we get the sense that God is not pleased with this. We get the sense that God is not looking upon them in the same manner that they are enacting them. Look with me at verse two. These two words here, I think this is really important 
for us to see. Because what the prophet is doing is he's portraying or painting this picture of because they're going through the motions, they might assume that they are delighting in God's ways and seeking the the face of God, but he's about to show that that is the farthest thing from reality. Look at these two words in the second statement. They seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if. As if they were a nation that loved righteousness. We see from the jump, he's saying they pretend like they are this, but they aren't. It's as if they're a nation that does these things, but they don't. They don't want these things. The difficult part about this verse is these practices are remarkable. In reading through the verse, I believe we're put in front of us a portrait of a community that every single one of us would want to be a part of, right? We would want this on our resume. If you could say this about our church, that would be a really wonderful thing in the hearing of it, right? We seek God daily. We delight to know his ways. Ask him for righteousness and delight in his nearness. However, there's something missing. And they know it. They experience it. Look with me at verse three. Immediately, we move from this portrait, this idealized portrait of their practices to their experience. Why have we fasted and you don't see it? Why have we humbled ourselves before you and you take no knowledge of it? This statement again should startle us as well. We've seen earlier that God has called his people to seek him. Isaiah 55 verses 1 and then 6 and 7, we heard the prophet declare, come to me all who thirst. Come to me, come to the waters. And then in verse 6 and 7, seek the Lord while he can be found. Seek after him, run after him, forsake your wickedness and run to him, says the Lord. We've seen that God called them to do this and he would abundantly and graciously respond. Yet these people were seeking him with a type of fervor, yet God was not pleased with their pursuit. He wasn't responding to their activities. We find almost immediately why. These activities are not actually pleasing to God. The prophet highlights that it was not, in fact, God they were seeking in their religious activities, in their fasting, in the afflicting of themselves, the humbling of themselves. We see immediately that it was their own pleasure they were looking for. Look at verse, uh, the, the end of verse 3. But behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all of your workers. Behold, you fast only for the purpose of quarreling and fighting to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. What we see here is God confronts them immediately and he says, you seek me, you, you, you come after me daily, you do the rituals, you go through the motions as if you're a nation that delights in me. But what you're missing is your pursuit is covering up something else. 
What you really only want is your pleasure, your indulgence, your own place of position. What we see here is they're, they're covering up blatant oppression and blatant self-indulgence with their religious activities. And God says, I don't want anything to do with it. In other words, the rituals that God had given them to draw near to him, God had actually given them all of these practices. That's the remarkable reality. God had given them things to go through, fast to participate in, uh, worship services to, uh, to have together, sacrifices to accomplish. He had given them all those things, but they were meant to produce a humble submission to his ways. They did them with hearts that were far off from him. And we see this elsewhere in Isaiah. Isaiah 29, 13, the prophet has hit this before. He says, the people draw near to me with their mouths. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts, they're far from me. And what the reality is, is that when he's saying here that their hearts are far from him, means what they're trying to do through these religious activities is placate or manipulate God but their hearts are closed to the transforming power of God's person and his ways, which is expressed in how they live the rest of their lives. Because if their hearts were open in humble submission to him, their lives would have been changed and transformed and they would have seen themselves and others in different ways and then behaved toward them differently. The difficulty of these verses is... There's hints at at what's happening, right? He says, you're seeking this for your own pleasure. You're oppressing your workers. You're quarreling and fighting. You're hitting with a wicked fist. We don't know the exact context into what this is spoken, right? Like when this was happening. But these verses, I don't think are meant to be prescriptive of religious hypocrisy, meaning that anytime religious hypocrisy is happening, these exact things are going on. Rather, they're descriptive of a particular sin that God's people were participating in, but I think there's ways that we can take it and apply it to ourselves. We have to do that by understanding what these verses are trying to do. The first thing that I want us to see, though, these verses are not an indictment against fasting. They're not an indictment against fasting in and of itself. I do want to just say that, right? You don't hear this and go, well, the practice of fasting isn't important because God says if you're doing it, you're, you're doing some hollow ritual. Jesus comes on the scene and says, my disciples will fast when I get taken away. So there is a reality of fasting that isn't getting hit on in this passage. I just want to make that sh- clear to us. The important thing that I think we have to understand is the ver- these verses are demonstrating that, that what the prophet's getting at is God's people are operating in blatant and willful disobedience. And because of this, no amount of religious ritual would garner abundant favor with God. I want you to hear that. This is the prophet hitting You are doing works of righteousness before me, rituals of worship, 
But there are places that you are coddling willful disobedience. Whether that's oppressing, whether that's quarreling and anger, whether that's selfish indulgence. He says you're actually not letting those parts of your life be affected by what you say you believe when you come before me. Within this section, we are to experience the profound irony of what's going on. God had just demonstrated in the end of the last chapter that he's with the crushed and the lowly. Yet these people, as they're seeking to worship God, were doing the crushing. They were pushing down others, putting heavy yokes on them. So whatever's happening, it's clear that the people are not expressing the mercy and the justice of God in their dealings with one another. God corrects the people by demonstrating that a type of fast that he would be much more pleased with. He says, I would much rather you not do all of these outward activities before me, but I'd rather you deal with one another with mercy and justice. He says, this is what I would be pleased with. One that resulted in obedience and justice and mercy among the community. I want to highlight this before we get to the promise. One of these things that it's important for us to understand, even within the Old Testament, but it, I think it applies to us as the people of God as well. The nature of God's covenant community, those that were redeemed, they were meant to be marked by lives that embodied what it meant to be God's people. Throughout the Old Testament, God called them to demonstrate a particular ethic among their community, specifically among those who were vulnerable and needy, that demonstrated his liberating mercy toward them. One of the things that you have to understand here is the people of God were those who had been brought out of bondage. And they were to therefore treat one another that way. Right? And in the as the people of God, one of the things we have to highlight or have to remember or have to sit under is that we have, are those who have received the unbelievable saving mercy of God in Christ Jesus. We have received grace and kindness and mercy that we did not deserve. And what this passage is getting at is that if this does not get embodied in how we live together. It does not really matter how many reachings we do. If we do not let love abound in our hearts as expressed in how we live, that it really doesn't matter all of the things that we rehearse or say or give lip service to. God desires our lives to embody a merciful, loving, forgiving, gracious way of being. This is where I think we can turn and take particular application to ourselves in our own world. I believe that what this message is to God's people is saying that our external ex attempts to demonstrate our righteousness 
are empty and hollow as long as there are places of open disobedience in our lives. We're the people of God, meant to be marked by love, forgiveness, mercy, and grace, yet there are many places where we will utilize a language of repentance and a desire for reckoning that functionally excuses us from places where we're operating in disobedience to the scriptures. Here, let me lay a couple out for you. These, I have, I have uh, labored over these in my own heart this week. These are like near and dear to me. And I want to offer them to you. Are there places in your life where you are allowing your subjective experience? And what I mean by that is an emotion, pain, a, a, a feeling that you have. You are allowing your subjective experience to excuse you from clear obedience to the scripture. I don't like that one, right? It makes me feel scared to do it. There's places where God's word confronts us and hits us face to face with the call to walking out obedience. And we don't get to say, no matter how much we don't want that to be true, we don't get to say, well, that doesn't apply here because I feel whatever I feel. We don't get to do that. Are there places in your life today where your subjective experience is excusing obedience to explicit places of the scripture? If so, I would invite you to repent. That's a scary place to be. Those are scary places when we excuse obedience because of what we feel or what others are telling us? Are there places where that's going on in your heart that you need to come before God and say, God, I want grace to obey you here. Second thing, are there places where we are minimizing the severity of things we might see as small sins because they're just like acceptable? Here's a good one. Complaining. Complaining. I'm going to turn this on myself, right? This week, I'm about to preach this. I'm sitting down, having a conversation with my wife, and I am just, I'm complaining. I'm complaining about everything, probably complaining about the weather, probably complaining about other drivers. Like, I don't even know what. Then it got to some bigger things, right? I don't like this. I don't like that this is the way it is. I don't like this and this and this and this. And my wife in her loving, wonderful, trumpet-like voice goes, you don't get to choose. And that's true. And so I have to repent for complaining, right? Complaining that my lot isn't what it should be 
complaining that this thing didn't go the way I wanted it to, complaining that it's everything around me's fault for me not responding the way that I should respond. Where are there places in your life and in my life where we minimize small things toward one another? Complaining, gossip, slander, judgment, where we do these things and we just say, well, it's okay. It's because everybody does it. It's because everybody does it. It's fine. It's not that big of a deal. When we're in that spot, I think we are in a place of letting ourselves stay in willful places of disobedience and not receiving the grace of God to be changed here. The last one that I want to do is if we are in a place of redefining biblical ideals to match our own desires, we're in a dangerous place. One of the examples I could give here is the idea of love, right? The idea of love, we don't get to define love, right? Love isn't what I feel when I'm around you. Love is not what I make you feel when you're around me. Love is behavioral and love is what we believe Go to 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. It's kind. It bears all things, hopes all things, believes all things, endures all things. It doesn't fail. It doesn't keep a record of wrongs. It covers a multitude of sins. That's love. So we don't get to say, oh, I'm being loving and then behave in a way that is different than that because of what I feel yet again. If we redefine these terms or redefine biblical ideals to match our desires, we're in a really scary spot. I want us to see one more indictment situated later in the middle of the heart of the promise because I think it matters for us where we are in our moment. In verse 9, the prophet highlights three more summary statements of what he's calling the people to turn away from. The first thing that he says is to take away the yoke. Hey, are there places where you in your dealings, in your actions with one another are pressing others down so that you can have more or have uh, more ease, more indulgence, more self-fulfillment? Ask the Lord to show you those. And then in those places, commit to acting in the opposite way, pouring yourself out, giving of yourself freely, taking the yoke away. That's one of the big ones that we see here in this. Where in our dealings with one another and with others are we content to prop up our own desires at the expense of someone else? That's the first thing. Take away the yoke. The second, he says, stop pointing the finger. Stop pointing the finger. And I think what we could do for this in our own midst is, if you think, I've said this before during this section, if you think that this word is for somebody else, do this number. 
Just do this number, right? If you're sitting in this room and looking around to make sure that so-and-so is here because they really need to hear this, take all of that energy and go, Spirit of God, what do you have for me? What do you have for me here? Will you show me the mirror so that I can more fully be conformed into your likeness? Don't point the finger. Yeah, you need this. You need this. You need this. Turn it and say, God, I need your grace here. Show me the places where I am quick to expend my energy for my own fulfillment, not for the good of another. Stop pointing the finger. And the last is stop speaking wickedness. Stop speaking wickedness. Watch our tongues. We could go to James there for a long time, but I'm not going to. Go read it later today. Ask the Lord to open your eyes, your heart to receive the truth of what it looks like to have a tongue that is ordered toward blessing and grace, not toward cursing. So we see those three things. But now we see that God gives an unbelievable promise in the midst of this. He warns them, your religious rituals will do nothing for you if you are keeping places of willful disobedience in your life. But the promise is this. If, rep- if you repent, if you repent, God will visit you and satisfy you with himself. Beginning in verse six, the Lord gives several if-then type statements demonstrating what it is he longs for and what the people will experience if they respond. If the people of God stop trying to fulfill their own selfish desires, indulgence, meaning not oppressing, start giving your things away. That's what you get here in verse six. Look at this. Is this not the fast that I choose? Would this not be so much more pleasing to loose the bonds of wickedness, undo the straps of the yoke, let the oppressed go free, break every yoke, take your stuff and give it away. Share your bread, bring the homeless poor into your house. When you see the naked, put clothes on him. Don't hide yourself from your own flesh. Take your stuff that you are so content to use for your own indulgence and start to look around you and go, I'm going to give it away. I'm going to, rather than use it for my own building up and selfish desires, I'm going to look and see all of the needs and I'm going to step toward them. Rather than trying to fulfill their own selfish desires, striving with one another, pointing the finger, speaking wickedness, and practicing willful disobedience. Turn. God promises to visit them with miraculous and abundant provision. This passage demonstrates the necessity of wholehearted obedience to God, expressed through mercy and justice toward one another. We do this. To do this, we have to set ourselves to do it to pursue him with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength, pursuing full and complete obedience by God's grace in every part of our lives. Hey, this is really important. Obedience does not merit favor with God, but obedience does demonstrate you believe him. 
Obedience demonstrates your faith in him. The litmus test of your faith is your obedience. Now, that doesn't mean perfection. Please don't hear me say perfection, right? We are going to stumble until the day we are fully glorified in God's grace. We will be weak. We will be broken. We will take one step forward, one step back, one step forward, one step back, two steps forward, one and a half step back. That's what it will look like to be a faithful follower of Jesus. The point isn't perfection. The point is I am actively pursuing obedience by God's grace in every single place that he has showed me. Every place. So has God put his finger on something in your life? You don't get to go, yeah, I'll get to that tomorrow. I'll get to that a week from now. I'll get to that six months from now. I'll get to that when I feel more stable here. I just need to, I need to prop myself up here, get these things in order, and then I'll deal with that thing. If God put his finger on something in your life, wholehearted obedience is saying yes. And then when you stumble in it, you repent, you run right back into the grace of God, and you do it again, wholly pursuing it. And when you stumble, you repent, and you run right back into the grace of God. You receive it, and you say, I want to pursue obedience to you here, no matter what. That's what it means to be wholehearted in your obedience. It, again, does not mean perfection. So please do not hear me saying it means some kind of works-based righteousness. We can't merit the favor of God. We can't merit God's life. We cannot merit his grace or his love. Obedience simply does this. It simply says, I take you at your word and I desire that my whole life would come into alignment with your word. And so I'm going to run after that. And again, when I stumble, when I'm weak, when I sin, when I fail, what I do is I don't make excuses for it. I don't minimize it. I don't say, well, that's just the way it is. I say that sin, I repent for it, and I run right back into the grace of God and ask him to, uh, to fill me again with his love and his mercy and his grace. I've found over the years of my life that the difficulty of this kind of obedience doesn't mostly come in like the overt, huge, heinous, blatant sins. Although we have to obviously pursue obedience there fully. But rather it's the seemingly small ones. Particularly our money, our time, our tongues. These are the places where we experience a lot of resistance in our own lives. And pursuing obedience in them, we experience a lot of breakthrough in our hearts and minds. Many of these places will be small, seemingly insignificant and hidden. Jesus tells us, this is what I, I love this, because so much, I mean, you could read this passage and feel pretty overwhelmed. Jesus tells us that this is like a cup of cold water. 
right? A cup of cold water given in his name. Secret, hidden, mostly unknown. This isn't about what you do on Instagram. This is not about the the causes that you take up in front of everybody. This is about what's going on in your heart and mind related to one another when no one sees and how you use your resources for the good of others in ways that may never, ever, 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 ever be championed this side of eternity. This isn't about accolades. This isn't about being in line with whatever the biggest thing is right now. This is about your heart being conformed into the character and the likeness of God himself so that we express in the ways that we think about one another and the ways that we speak to one another and the ways that we love one another and the ways that we're generous with our resources with one another that we express the generosity and love and mercy and justice of our God. And he sees that. This is mostly going to be small, seemingly insignificant, and hidden. It's in response to this kind of pursuit, though, that God promises that he will act. This is important because we can become uncertain of the place between faith and obedience. However, it's clear that the scriptures, obedience does not earn God's favor. Like I said earlier, we cannot earn it. We have to receive it on the merits of Jesus. However, obedience does most fully demonstrate our faith in Christ and our allegiance to him. I want you to just look at these promises that God gives here. There are seven that he says them a couple ways. A few of them he says more than once, but there are seven unbelievable realities that get laid out here. He says, if you do these things, if you start to take your energy and rather than using it for your own gain, you use it for the good of others, you humble yourself, you express love and mercy and justice among one another, I will do these things. I will bring light to darkness. And this is amazing. This isn't like the beginning of the sunrise in the midst of darkness. The image he uses here is it will be like the darkest of night into the heat of the noonday. The stark difference between the darkest part of the night and the most blazing part of the day. That's what I'll do. I will bring healing to your wounds I will be glory before you and behind you. I will answer your cries. I mean, think about this. What it, what it would be like. This, I, I, I love this one. He says, you'll cry to me and I'll go, here I am. Here I am. Here I am. God will say. He will satisfy you in scorched places in places that feel like they've been scorched and there's nothing but barren land, I will satisfy you. I will bring strength to bones where there is weakness. I will be waters to you that never fail, waters that never run out, and I will rebuild where there was destruction. Every one of these promises is a drastic, remarkable, reversible, reversible, reversal, God is demonstrating resurrection life here. 
the power in the midst of his people. Why we have these promises here, I think is amazing. Isaiah's condemned the people for religious hypocrisy throughout. Throughout. He said, you're, you're religiously hypocrites. You do these things with your mouth, your heart's far off. You do these things in your actions, but your heart isn't near me. And every time in Isaiah up to this point, the promise is judgment. The promise is judgment. Why do we get these amazing promises here? It's because the work of the servant has happened. On this side of Isaiah 53, now for those who practice religious hypocrisy, who have places where we run after God and try to seek him and long for his presence, but there's places we don't want him to touch in our lives. He says, for you, for me in that place, because the servant has come and dealt with your sin and your iniquity, I've laid it all on him. Because of that, if you repent, I will meet you with resurrection life now. In the place where you're most desolate, you'll have satisfaction. In the place where you feel darkest, you'll experience light. You'll be strong where there's weakness. You will have waters that never ever, ever, ever run out. And I will let you partner with me in rebuilding the ruins. That's what's amazing about this at the end when he says, you will repair the ruins. Your name will be repairer of the ruins, restorer of streets where people can dwell. He doesn't just say, I will do this for you. He says, I'll do all of these things and then I will bring you into a place of partnership with me where you will partner with me in reconciliation and redemption and restoration. It's unbelievable. And we get to glory in that truth that the servant has come. The servant, Jesus Christ, has come. He's lived the life we couldn't. He had zero hypocrisy in him. Every single moment of his life was spent at the will of the Father and then pouring out every resource he had for the good of others embodying the perfect love of God where you and I struggle with hypocrisy. The servant never one time did. No guile was found inside of him. Not one place of discord between perfect communion with the Father and perfect embodiment of love and mercy and justice. And in his life, because he did not consider his position as something to be held on to, he poured himself out to death, taking on himself the judgment that we deserved, the wrath of God that was rightly ours, so that through his death we might have life if we put faith in him. And we get to come and celebrate that truth this morning by coming to this table. We get to celebrate the reality of the servant of God who reorients the entire story of God's people around God's scandalous grace and saving power in himself. We take a piece of the bread and we dip it into the cup 
The way we take it here, we have stoneware that has wine in it and glassware that has juice. We'll have servers in the front, the middle, and both sides of the balcony. And we have an allergy-free, gluten-free to my right, to your left. If you put your faith in Jesus, if the servant of the Lord is your only hope, I want to invite you to come and take this meal this morning. Run to the table this morning. Put your hope in him again this morning. Say, would your life be sufficient for the places of hypocrisy in my own heart? In the places where I am quick to coddle or hold or keep away willful disobedience, would your life be enough for me there and receive it? And then in that place, ask God to shine the light in your heart. Ask him to shine light, to confront you, to like a hammer blow to a hard heart. Bring us into greater conformity because he has sufficient grace. He has sufficient mercy. He has sufficient life to meet you there and bring transformation. So if you're a Christian, come and take that. If you don't put your faith in Jesus, we ask that you not come take this meal. Um, It doesn't earn you something before God. It doesn't merit his favor. What, What we would invite you to do this morning plead with you to do this morning is to see your need for the saving power of God alone. Maybe the places where you are walking in disobedience and walking in a way that is not pleasing to God and throw yourself at his mercy. Throw yourself at his mercy. We would plead with you to take Christ, not to come take this meal. But for those who are taking, I'm going to pray for us and then we'll come and receive together. God, I want to ask you as we close this morning, God, I want to ask that you would speak into our hearts this morning. God, in places where we are quick to um, maybe minimize or explain away postures in our hearts that are not embodiments of your love and grace. God, would you confront us this morning? And would you sustain us? Would you give us unbelievable amounts of your grace and mercy? God, would you invite us to the place of repentance? And in repentance this morning, I ask that you would begin to manifest the promises that you've declared to us in this scripture. God, would you shine light in darkness? Would you heal wounds? Would you cause there to be strength and weakness? Would you satisfy in scorched places? Would you help us to be able to rebuild and restore and be ministers of reconciliation in your world. Because of your grace toward us, we ask. Would you feed us? Would you sustain us? Would you keep us? In Jesus' name, amen.